Hi, this is Bennett Kelly. Thanks for listening to Cyberlaw Business Report. Before you take a recess to hear the latest internet law news and commentary, you are hereby ordered to download the Webmaster Radio.fm mobile app for iPhone and Android. Okay, maybe not ordered, but why not? You can listen live to my show and all our show hosts every day on our live stream or download past episodes with ease. So download the webmasterradio.fm mobile app in the iTunes store or in the Google Play store. It's an open and shut case. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. And I hope you catch the Silicon Beach L.A. Um, Harlem um, Harlem Shake that's circulating on YouTube. But um, on a more serious note, we have a great show for you today. We have um, with us um, Stan Stahl from Citadel Security. Stan is a veteran of the show um, he's one of the leading figures in um, Internet security today, and he's going to be talking to us about the latest wave of cyber attacks and um, some of the proposals that are out there to address them. Um, and then today is actually a historic day, um, in, in some ways a dark day, um, and we're going to explain why, and we'll have Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton on um, to talk about um, that day and what it means, and you'll be surprised to know um, what happened um, in 1801 on this day, February 27th? I'll have to make one shout-out since this is a radio broadcast. Today is the birthday of Howard Hessman. Of, uh, remember him as Johnny Fever from um, WKRP, and uh, it is his birthday. And, of course, um, happy birthday to Chelsea Clinton. Um, I'm sure um, Russell Limbaugh is doing that as well. But in uh, any event, um, do we have Stan on the line? Yes, you do. Um, Stan, um, happy uh, happy birthday! Welcome to the show. Um, we've we've had we've seen quite a wave of reports that just seem to be pouring in attacks on banks, um, the study on China, um, longstanding um, and ongoing deep cyber penetration within the U.S. Um, it just every other day there seems to be some new major cyber um, attack news or hack news. You know what? what how do we wade through it? What, what has been the stories that really come, captured you that you see as significant that we should be paying attention to? Uh, very good question, Bennett, and, and you're right that we're seeing a wave, a wave of stories. We started uh, publishing uh, of cybersecurity news of the week oh, a couple of years ago now, and it would be a challenge then to find 10 or 15 good stories that are worth, uh, you know, getting out into the, into the, the public that, uh, here, read this. And now we're, you know, it's, 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 it's no problem at all to get 15, 20 good stories, even better than, than what we saw then. And, and the, the upshot of those stories, I think, is that all the way up and down the, the economic uh, spectrum, uh, the political spectrum, the national security spectrum, we're seeing cybersecurity challenges. Uh, whether it's, as, as you just mentioned, 
you know, at the national level, banks under attack, ostensibly, allegedly, from Iran, uh, the Chinese breaking into, allegedly breaking into uh, most of the Fortune 1000 companies uh, to, to steal intellectual property, the recent report from the New York Times that they were under attack, uh, breached, again, allegedly by the Chinese, uh, because some of the New York Times reporters were writing stories that the Chinese government really wasn't happy about, so they wanted to uh, have, try to try to influence that. Uh, over the last few weeks since the State of the Union addre address by uh, President Obama, he signed an executive order uh, doing what he can do on cybersecurity without uh, Congress's action. Uh, and, and just the last couple of days is a piece of that. Uh, the uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology has, is, is asking industry for guidance on putting together a set of voluntary standards for, uh, for businesses to follow, particularly businesses in critical infrastructure. And um, what, was, what was your impression of the president's proposal? one of those things that you got to make a start somewhere and it, it's it's unfortunate that uh, in, in the political environment that we see in Washington DC we can't get agreement on uh, the kinds of things that ultimately need legislative approval to move forward on uh, what the president did I thought was very very appropriate uh, finding a mechanism by which uh, sensitive government information about cyber attacks can be communicated to national infrastructure, uh, whether it's, it's food, water, our banking system, things like that. I've spoken to several bankers uh, about that, and they're very much looking forward to help, having the help of the federal government in a way they've not had before in identifying and being able to, to block some of the, the cybercrime that is affecting the financial industry. Those kinds of things, I think, are absolutely uh, right on, right spot on by the, by the president, um, as well as, as what we just saw, as I, I mentioned, out of NIST. Uh, okay, so we're not going to have uh, regulations on our critical infrastructure yet because we can't get Congress to, to approve something that, that would be an appropriate balance, if you will. Uh, in, in, in the regulatory environment, but at least now we're moving forward to develop what can be taken on as as, uh, as voluntary standards. It's not where we need to go, but it's a good step, and it's a good first step in that direction. Well, I think that I, I agree with you. I, I think the fact the absence um, of anyone any standards and no no floor uh, is significant because there was a survey done I think in the last eighteen months of um, um, top executives worldwide, I think 73% or 83% said they weren't doing enough on cybersecurity. And, and so when you have most businesses admitting they're behind, um, setting some standards so that people can measure whether they're, where they are, I think it's an important first step. Absolutely true. Uh, there was a, a recent piece, a couple of pieces, in fact, uh, on looking at the, the perspective from chief legal officers, and it's exactly what you just said. I mean, so much more has to be has to be done. And when you're dealing with issues like the security of our water delivery systems and the water itself, of our food, of our energy, of our financial systems, um, it, it 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 seems unreasonable to me to refuse to put a floor and say, look. 
you've got to do at least this much. <coughs> uh, that's, it's private industry, yes, so that one can argue, you know, regulations, we don't want any more than we absolutely need to. But, you know, nobody seems to argue about regulations like having red lights at major intersections uh, because that's part of... Oh, that's what those are. <laughs> yeah, that's a regulation, right? Stop at a red light. My God, the government's telling me what to do. Well, keep your systems patched. Train your people. Government's telling me what to do, but you know, those are good things to do. They are. I mean, the whole thing is, you know, there is a, a you need some rules um, for order. And, and the problem in this space is that it's a new area, and so no one knows what they should be doing. And so sometimes you need to give them guidance. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure everyone will be glad to get to a certain point as long as they know that's the point they have to go to. When you don't know what you're supposed to do, and and you know, it could be anywhere from small investment to you know a huge and insurmountable amount. Um, you know, people are going to hesitate to act. But when if you can define certain steps they can take, and they're reasonable then I think you'll see more people starting to move that direction. And so it's kind of someone has to lead. And when there's so much uncertainty, um, it, it just won't happen from the marketplace. There is no market disincentive right now for um, you know, lack of security because it seems, well, well everyone's getting hit, so what, what matters if we're getting hit? And there really hasn't been any examples of consumers abandoning a company because they got hit. And so, you know, someone needs to create an incentive somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, absolutely right. I think in, in part those incentives are emerging in California. I mean, it's for protected health information of California residents. You're now looking at, at statutory damages of $1,000 a record. Uh, that's a million dollars if you've got a thousand healthcare records in, in your system. Uh, the insurance companies are getting out somewhat in front of this by offering both cyber liability and cyber crime insurance. Uh, so with that comes the ability to do a little bit better awareness training so that businesses understand what they can do better to secure their sensitive information. But even there, there is still so much misguided information. People think, oh, well, we have a firewall. We have antivirus software, therefore we're protected. But every time you go out to the Internet, uh, to www, your favorite whatever, you're going through your firewall, and what comes back comes back through your firewall. So stuff goes in and out, and the cyber criminals have learned to piggyback those channels so that they can get their malicious software in. People think their antivirus software is protecting them. We find with the attacks that are out there today, antivirus software is catching somewhere, only somewhere between 10 and 50% of those attacks. So that that also is by itself not adequate. And so there's a lot of that old mythology back from the days when the hacker was, you know, some pimply-faced 14-year-old boy, uh, you know, in his bedroom seeing what kind of damage he might cause because he was young and full of whatever, wanting to do it. Now it's all crime or worse, national defense. I mean, those are much, much, much more serious uh, than the, the, the kid who's, you know, brings down your system and you clean it up and you go back doing what you're doing. 
just give you an example. I got a phone call yesterday from a law firm that uses an outside payroll service. One of the partners in the law firm had her password to that service stolen. We don't know how yet. Uh, mm. We may never know. And somebody went in and uh, changed the bank routing number where her bank, uh, you know, her payment, her her, uh, her salary was being uh, sent. Uh, money went off to a bank different from hers. It was converted immediately into a debit card. Money's gone. Um, whether wow. it's the fault of the partner in the law firm or the payroll company doesn't matter. At some level, the money's gone. It's right. in Eastern Europe or wherever it is. Regardless of whose fault it is, it's now a problem that has to be solved and is you know, detracting from those people doing their normal business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's affecting every business now. And um, you know, of, there was a recent report that got a lot of attention over um, tracking a lot of cyber attacks and pinpointing the source as being a Chinese governmental entity in Shanghai. Yes. And um, what was your impression of that report? And and, and what does that mean then if um, we have a government entity that is outright attacking our um, our infrastructure and our, our businesses? Right. It's a serious challenge. Uh, the, the, that report, uh, Mandiant, who did the analysis for the New York Times, uh, when the Times was breached by, again, allegedly the Chinese, uh, was able to trace a number of cyber attacks. I mean, and I mean by a number, a large number of attacks, back to this one specific building in Shanghai. Uh, and, of course, the Chinese government says, no, that's not us, and they, you know, they deny all of, all of that. But at the same time, it's, it's so clear that um, we are under attack. Uh, are they want our intellectual property? Uh, there was a story the other day that the theft by uh, these these uh, allegedly the, the Chinese that an attack on one company, theft of intellectual property. The impact is a loss of twenty five thousand jobs here in America. Wow! There was another story not too long ago. Company spends ten years and a billion dollars on R and D, and hackers get into the system, steal that billion dollars worth of R and D. What's it cost them to to steal it? A few thousand dollars, maybe. Right. I mean, that's a heck of a return on investment. So it's um, kind of I'm reminded of the Smith Barney um, commercial. We make money the old fashioned way, which in this case is to steal it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Why develop your own intellectual property? Let 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 other people do that for you, and then hack into their computer systems and take it. It's gone. You now have it. Wow, boy! As I say, what a return on investment that is. Okay, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion with Stan Stahl, and we're talking about what um, the uh, commander of the cyber um, U.S. Cyber Command is called the greatest transfer of wealth in world history. Um, back after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Ever wondered how you could have access to your own SEO expert, paid search specialist, or social media wizard? Looking for help with your affiliate, display media, or email marketing? Look no further than the folks at Fang Digital Marketing. 
Fang Digital specializes in both paid and organic search, social media, display, and mobile advertising solutions, and is staffed by industry veterans from Google, Yahoo, and one of the industry's most influential PPC experts. Fang Digital's award-winning staff stays on top of the latest in digital trends and offer tailored solutions so they can audit your progress and build a roadmap to your success. Learn more about their expanding range of full-service strategic marketing solutions at fangdigital.com. That's F-A-N-G, digital.com. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is AuthorityLabs.com. Oh yeah, my day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use CertifiedKnowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report, Webmaster Radio. And we have Stan Stahl, the um, president of Citadel Security. Stan's been a regular on this show and is somewhat of the dean of the um, cybersecurity community in Los Angeles um, with um, Citadel Security. And uh, he's also head of a major... Um, um, association of um, Information Security Systems Association. Uh, try this in English. Um, the Information Systems Security Association, and um, they have a, some a major conference coming up. To actually, that has uh, um, Mr. Schmidt from Google coming out to, to talk. So, um, Stan, we were just talking about the what 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 the commander of the u s cyber command has called the the greatest transfer of wealth in, in history and in terms of the amount of um that has been transferred overseas through theft of i p and resources and and whatnot um, is it getting better or worse mm, good question bennett um, my sense and it's it's only anecdotal and reading the the surveys that are out there and and so on is that it is getting significantly worse. Um, and part of the reason, somewhat in the hesitation of my answer, is only that I don't believe we have yet really good statistics on uh, what is going on in, in, in cyber theft. Uh, we've got stories as businesses are willing to go public, like the New York Times recently, that they've been hit. Uh, uh, distributed denial-of-service attack against a financial institution that kind of becomes public automatically. Uh, the same thing, I mean, NBC's website last week 
uh, was hit by hackers so that anybody going there uh, for a period of time had the risk of downloading malicious software onto their computers. We see those, but those are like the data points that pop up. What we don't see are all the thefts that either a company doesn't even know about or they discover the theft, but they keep quiet about it because it's they don't feel it's in their you know, their their financial interest to to go public with with the uh, with with the announcement. There's a you know we've got breach disclosure laws that at least we get a sense when personal information is uh, breached and an alert a disclosure has to be made. We don't have that corresponding thing when it's the internal loss of a company, particularly a non-public company. I mean, the SEC is doing some pushing to get companies to disclose thefts of intellectual property if they're publicly traded, because that's, in the SEC's terms, uh, a material event. But private businesses don't have to do anything along these lines. So part of what we need is just more and better statistics uh, around this to, to really know how bad this situation is becoming. But I think from everything I see, just even just the numbers of news articles uh, that are out there, uh, there is more going on now. This is a more serious problem than it has ever been in, in, in the past. And when people call you for your services, is 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 the nature of the conversation changing? Are 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 the threats they're talking about more serious, or is there aware, you know are they at least more aware of the of what they need to do to address the situation? Yeah, typically, good question again. And typically, when we get called now, uh, more often than not, it's because of a security event, as opposed to a couple of years ago, it was. Uh, more of well, we've got laws and regulations we have to make sure we abide by, and and those, those kinds of, of things. That is, it was more of a before a time of need. Uh, now, uh, just in the last few weeks, I mentioned the call yesterday from the law firm. We're seeing uh, a number of, of companies who called us recently that they literally dodged a bullet with online bank fraud. Uh, in a couple of cases, we have seen identity theft, and where they didn't dodge that bullet in in the online bank fraud, uh, so that there, there's more of this. We've been hit. Uh, come help us make sure that it doesn't happen again. And um, and then as they in, in talking with them as as consumers of your service. Is, are they more knowledgeable than maybe like they were three years ago, or it's still basically you're in the, um, I guess, <laughs> Dick Cheney referred to as uh, in the shadows in the dark world that they don't understand, and um, you know they're trying to figure, rely on you to, to tell them what needs to be done. Yeah, uh, very much. They don't. They don't fully understand. Um, they're often surprised about things like I, I, I mentioned earlier about, you know, your antivirus not protecting you as well as it did a few years ago. They're surprised by that. In the case of on things like online bank fraud, uh, they're surprised that the bank regulations don't require the bank to give money back if it's been stolen uh, using the credentials of, of, the, of the company. Uh, they're not aware of that. They're not aware that their insurance doesn't cover a lot of cyber liability, cyber crime events, 
so in, in part what we find we do a lot uh, beyond actually you know going in rolling up our sleeves and, and implementing solutions for them if you will we're also doing a lot of, of awareness uh, training both at the senior owner president general manager you know person at the top or the executive team at the top but then also just training um, all the users in an organization so that they better understand their role, their responsibility in keeping an organization, keeping their company, their organization secure. And is that partly what the ISSA is about, is about reaching out from the security industry to, to businesses to kind of help educate them about what, what the situation is? Exactly. That, in some sense, that's ex- what we are about. We're an education, a nonprofit educational organization. Um, we started, uh, ISSA International started here in Los Angeles back in 1982. Uh, we're now in, I don't know, some large number of countries with uh, several tens of thousands of, of members. Uh, here in Los Angeles, uh, we, we made a, a very conscious uh, decision a few years ago that we saw what we saw then what's happening now that that cybercrime is just going to get worse and and worse more challenging for for our, our our companies and and our people our consumers as as well and so we launched this community outreach program uh, the idea being that it takes the village to secure the village everybody's got a role to play and we've been acting on that um, kind of perspective uh, ever since, ever since then, and, and the summit we have a, an annu- our annual summit coming up in in the next. Uh, it's coming up May twenty first, and that's that's our annual event that kind of really plays to uh, the, the idea that everybody's got to get involved. The summit is the only event we know of, the only security uh, event, uh, not just in Southern California but in in the country, that brings together business executives, technical IT people, and information security leaders all in the same venue so that they can learn from each other. One of the things the security people have to learn is the, the, the business realities that define what security folks have to do. Obviously, the business executives need to learn more about what these challenges are and what their responsibility is for, for managing them, that you can't simply rely on the security experts. And the technical IT people, uh, they've been on the front lines for years, but their focus is primarily keeping systems up and running and making sure that you know the desktop support is there when it's needed. They're now more and more being asked to really take on a, a security responsibility, so they too need the, the kind of training and, and all that an event like our summit provides. And, um, and who's your headliner for that? Howard Schmidt. Uh, Howard's the recently retired uh, cybersecurity coordinator for the White House, his special assistant to President Obama. Uh, he's also a former ISSA International Board President, so he's our keynote speaker. And the way the summit works, we we uh, we basically break into two different kinds of tracks. Uh, after Howard 
talk. So that he'll he'll speak about quarter to nine in the morning uh, on on the twenty first. Uh, after he speaks, we take the executives in one direction. We we we've got some stuff uh, uh, for a you know, special program for for executives, and we take the technical people in another actually set of programs because we've got different. Uh, different speakers throughout the, the day for the uh, information security and, and IT people. The executives, uh, we keep them through the morning. We figure that's, you know, that, that's probably as much of their attention as, as we're likely to get, and, and we don't want to, if you will, <laughs> overstate our welcome uh, with them. But we'll have, after Howard talks, we'll have a, a special, uh, as I say, session for them. We're, we're planning a hacking demonstrations so that executives can see just literally how easy it is to hack into an organization. Uh, we'll have that. Uh, we've got uh, the executive, the assistant director, sorry, the assistant director of the FBI, Bill Lewis, who will be speaking to the executives. And I'm going to give a little talk to them as well on some real practical things that they need to do that they can do um, in, in their organizations. Um, so when, when people have been coming to you lately, what, what is this, um, the thing that they, they, that drives them most other than a breach? It's always a combination of those two things, if you will. One thing being a breach or a loss or some kind of security incident event that happens to them. And the other is compliance with the increasing laws, whether it's HIPAA, high tech, whether it's Graham Leach Bliley, whether it's the just regulations like uh, uh, the payment card industry, MasterCard, Visa, and so on, have they have their data security standard? If you take credit cards, you're subject to uh, those standards, so you've you've got to implement them as well. So they're coming to us for one side or the other of that, either it's the cyber crime side or it's the how do we make sure that our you know that we're compliant with the laws and, and regulations and agreements and all uh, that that uh, that we have um, now it, one thing that emerged over, over the holidays was this major attack on the u s banking system yeah. emanating from Iran. And you know, a lot of talk has been about um, China and Russia as cyber threats, but Iran really seems to be emerging as a major source of attacks. Um, you know, what what is your impression of of that, and how accurate you think that is, and and what what can we do to contain that? Yeah, uh, first, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Iran has stepped up as a key player in attempting to harm the U.S. economy through cyber attacks. Um, a lot of these distributed denial of service attacks on banks um, have, you know, at least looked like they've come from Iran. And uh, just one example, and again, this may or may not be the Iranians, but it's an illustration of the kind of challenges that that uh, companies and their financial institutions are facing uh, over the Christmas holiday. A um, Company in here in California was hit with nine hundred thousand dollars worth of online bank fraud, and a key piece of what allowed that attack to be successful was as the cyber criminals were moving nine hundred thousand dollars from a company's bank account to their own bank accounts offshore. The bank was hit with a distributed denial of service attack, diverting their attention away from 
this $900,000 fraud because now they're stuck. Okay, we've got to get our systems up and running, and they didn't notice the fraud until it had already uh, happened and the money was, was now gone and it had been transferred. Um, so you've got, the, you know, the on the one hand, the Iranians hitting us with these kinds of attacks. Banks are, are very, very much under under attack from them, and those attacks are then being used uh at the same time as fraud uh, uh, is being perpetrated on the bank's customers. That's one of the reasons, I mean, just when you look at the, the whole idea of it takes the village to secure the village, uh, one of the things we've done here at ISSA, our Los Angeles chapter, is we've started a financial services fraud working group. We've got, uh, we, we, we met last week, we had about eight banks, dozen people from those banks were beginning to work together, sharing information, finding ways to improve awareness of bank customers around all of this so that um, even when there's not enough action out of the government and even when no bank by itself can maybe perhaps have the resources to do the kind of community outreach that's needed so that businesses can better protect themselves. Here we've got a consortium of banks working with uh, our ISSA LA chapter so that perhaps together we can have a greater impact than if all of these banks simply went off on their own doing their own thing. Now there's um, a lot of, uh, for example, China soon will surpass the U.S. in terms of the uh, amount of dollars spent online and you, know, you have other emerging markets like Brazil um, and uh, what is the and I imagine which will attract a lot of US companies to them or start doing business more with uh, in Brazil or with Brazilian companies uh, what is the state of affairs in, in some of the other emerging markets good question and uh, Brazil we've seen under attack a, a lot we've seen a lot of attacks to, against Brazilian companies uh, here and when I look at it, again, what, what we have in the, in the way of statistics, the, we seem to be, we the U.S., seem to be where most of the attacks are directed against. Uh, we are the, the, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in some sense here. China, in deflecting attempts to uh, say, okay, you know, you're doing all of this hacking, they talk about all the hacking that's going on of the Chinese and of Chinese companies, ostensibly by others as as well. Um, there's a lot of chaos, uh, total chaos in, in international things. Uh, it's beginning. UK and India just signed a cybersecurity treaty just a couple of days ago. That's the kind of thing we need uh, to, to help get our arms around this. As part of the president's quote five point plan, uh, there's. Uh, one of those efforts is to focus diplomatic efforts to protect trade secrets overseas, and that's going to be a two-way street. I mean, if we're going to help, if we expect, let's say, Brazil to help us, we've got to help Brazil as well, let's, to just use one example. Uh, so I, I'm hopeful that there will be more in the diplomatic front uh, around these, these, these areas. And I guess that's the thing. I mean, when you have someone talking about 800-pound gorillas, I mean, I think you have matching gorillas in this current um, battle between the United States and China, where they're they're not openly doing it, 
but they're, they're very close to openly doing it. <laughs> and, right. um, and more or less daring us to, what are you, you going to do? You're going to sail across the Pacific and come after the most populous nation on Earth? That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know people who, you know, say, okay, they're doing this, let's, let's, let's drop a bomb on that building. Well, I don't think that's the right way to go. Uh, we don't want a shooting war over this. I mean, that, that would uh, destroy a lot of what we've been trying to build for the last, well, since the end of World War II in some ways. Yes. This, this, you know, a, a, world communi- a world economic community. Uh, at the same time, China, it's not in China's interest to weaken us too much. They do have, what, a trillion dollars of debt, of our debt that they have. Uh, oh, yeah, how about that? <laughs> yeah, right. What are we going to do? Uh, so, th- and it, that, that says that there's only, there's a limit to what you can expect out of diplomacy. So you've got to look internally, and I think this, again, this goes to the, the president's uh, executive order and things that we would like out of, out of our legislators in Washington. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've got to enhance law enforcement and, and Fortunately, the president's able to do that somewhat on his own, not, notwithstanding the sequestration that's likely to happen in a couple of days. Um, we have got to, I think, as much as anything else, one of the things the government can do is just raise public awareness and, and let stakeholders have a better understanding of what they themselves can do. Again, it goes back to the the mythology that so many businesses have that they're properly protected uh, with firewalls and antivirus and and so on. I mean, the the government can be a key partner in helping to raise awareness and in some sense having, like, Mr. Lewis of the FBI come to our summit, having Howard Schmidt, ex- uh, cybersecurity coordinator in the White House be the keynote speaker at our summit. This is all a part of that. But those are one-day events. And one-day events are, are important, but they don't change long-term behavior. For changing long-term behavior, you need to get these businesses just to, on an ongoing basis to become and to, more aware of what's going on and to stay aware, to recognize that in their business, they have got to treat the management of cybersecurity, of information, sensitive information. They've got to treat that with exactly the same discipline that they currently treat their finances, let's say. Uh, I mean, every company above a certain size will have controls around the finance because we've got a history of, you know, every now and then there are bad apples who commit fraud. So there are standards around how you manage your own books and who you allow access to them and so on. Uh, not that it eliminates fraud completely, but it lowers the incident of it. And when you're looking at private industry, you can legitimately say, hey, look, if a company's too dumb to protect their finances and they become the victim of fraud, well, that's private enterprise at work. There's That same attitude is, in some sense, has got to be put onto how security is managed. Businesses have got to understand that they've got to manage the sensitivity of their information with that same discipline, and a pox on them if they don't. Uh, if, if they're not involved in critical infrastructure or anything, you know, uh, companies going out of business because they've been victims of cyber pro- fraud, cyber crime, cyber you know issues like that, that may be the best headlines to help the other companies 
understand that they've got to do a better job because they see their their uh, you know the people companies like them that go out of business because of it. Um, well, one thing I have to manage is uh, is my the time. I actually get a note from my producer. Um, yeah. We have to wrap up, but um, Stan, if there's um, what, how do people find out more information about the conference? Uh, go to issa-la.org. Uh, you can even leave the dash out; it'll still work. issa-la.org, and uh, for. Uh, the technical folks. We've got a day before the summit of special training for technical people, and then we've got the half day for executives on on the summit, twenty first. Great. Thanks again, Stan. It's always a pleasure. Stan Stall, oh. Citadel Security. Thank and you. Ben. We'll it's be back after this you. break. Thank you. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Have you tried to do CPA conversions using social PPC and failed? You're not alone. These days, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube require true specialists to dominate. Aimclear, the agency, brings definitive psychographic targeting, bleeding-edge creative, and killer content amplification to the social advertising table. Aimclear. This is how you sell with social. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Discuss and shape the future of performance marketing in New York City, March 12th to the 13th at the Performance Marketing Insights Conference. Come hear from and talk to other global industry leaders as they share how they're developing new revenue streams, deploying the latest technologies, preparing for increased regulation, and leveraging for the most effective digital advertising channels. WebmasterRadio.fm listeners can save 15% on registration by using the promo code W-E-B-M-P-M-I-15. That's W-E-B-M-P-M-I-1-5. For more information and to register today, visit PerformanceMarketingInsights.com. Rise links and web indexes. Take a bow to the largest link map in the world. Majestic SEO. Majestic SEO wields its virtual sort with speed and accuracy to deliver detailed reports of your company's link data and that of your competition. Let Majestic SEO make you your own king of Internet marketers and join the crusade of clients and agencies that have chosen the noble choice for link intelligence. MajesticSEO.com Maximize ROI to use your time and let Majestic wield its mighty sword. MajesticSEO.com It's good to be king. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. Um, this is Ben and Kelly with the Internet Law Center. And um, from time to time, we cover some issues that aren't necessarily directly germane to cyberspace. You know, for example, we had Tom McMillan on um, to talk about the... Um, the the 20th, or excuse me, the 40th anniversary of the Munich Massacre and then 72 games. And um, today is actually a historical date of significance that very few people are aware of. Um, in 1801, um, President John Adams signed today the, um, the District of Columbia Organic Act. And what that did was it transferred control of the District of Columbia to Congress. And from that point forward, um, the citizens of District Columbia have been disenfranchised. Um, they would not be able to vote 
for president until 163 years later. So from President Jefferson to President Kennedy, the residents of the District of Columbia had no vote. Um, and they still do not have a voting represent- representative in Congress um, in only 169 years later in the 70s were they given a voting representative, even though Puerto Rico has had one since 1898. Um, but it's non-voting. And so there have been efforts to give D.C. a vote, both in the House and the Senate. They have no representative in the Senate. And so on this historic occasion, we brought in um, D.C.'s um, representative to Congress, um, Eleanor Holmes Norton. Um, she is the delegate to Congress um, for the District of Columbia. She's a former member of the, of the EEOC under the Carter administration and a Georgetown law professor. And um, so it's been our honor to be able to talk to the, um, Congresswoman Norton about this historic day and what it means, because so few Americans are aware that even today, uh, two centuries after the American Revolution, there are over 600,000 Americans living with taxation without representation. We have with us Cong- Congressman Eleanor Holmes Norton, who is the um, District of Columbia representative in Congress, but unfortunately a non-voting member of Congress. And um, Congressman Norton, um, this is a historic day in the District of Columbia, and why is that? Well, this is the day that the District of Columbia became the nation's capital after a 10-year transition. Um, The land, of course, ceded uh, from Maryland and Virginia, where their their respective states had made sure that while they were in transition, they would maintain all the rights uh, that they had always had, and those are the same rights as other American citizens. Uh, because once the capital became the capital, uh, Maryland, Virginia would lose that jurisdiction, and it would be up, of course, to the Congress uh, to grant the district the rights that these residents of Maryland, Virginia had had when they were citizens of those states. Lo and behold, the Congress did not do it. The people went to the streets. So 1801 for us is not only the day when the district became the capital, but it is the day when residents lost their rights, rights that they once had, and the rights that we seek now to reclaim. And uh, it would be some uh, 100 and approximately 150 years later before um, district residents were even allowed to vote in presidential elections. That is certainly the case. There were on and off periods when they had various forms of of local government, uh, for example, the radical Republicans after the Civil War uh, not only gave the district a local government, but a delegate to Congress like me. Uh, remember, delegates were supposed to be on their way to statehood, and the Republicans, who, who now have their opposites in power, I must tell you today, uh, uh, who empowered the district. And there were some uh, some periods even before that when there were bits and spots of, of having local government. But uh, after Reconstruction, uh, the district lost uh, all that it had won, uh, and interestingly enough, had won when Frederick Douglass was an active Republican uh, 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 crusaded for what he called uh, suffrage uh, for the district uh, and himself ran for uh, this earlier version of what we now call the city council and lost to another member, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but became the recorder of deeds, uh, became a trustee of Howard University and a staunch Washingtonian. Much of that history is lost, 
And that history is going to be reclaimed because in a few months, um, um, Frederick Douglass is coming to the Capitol the first time the district has ever had a statue in the Capitol to represent the District of Columbia. I had a hard time getting it because there are some senators who think we shouldn't have a, a statue in the Capitol because we're not a state, but we found a way to do it. Residents voted that, that there would be two representatives. We've gotten our first one, and that would be Frederick Douglass, and, of course, the second one would be uh, Pierre L'Enfant. It took us a long time to get the first one, so I'm going to have to keep, keep that at work to get the second, and the reason we want the second is because states generally have two, and no. we pay the same taxes that, 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 that residents of states had, and we want exactly what they have in every other respect as well. And one of the things you want is a is a vote in Congress. And right now, you're not allowed to vote on anything other than committee, right? I vote in committee. Uh, I even wrote a memo uh, that allowed me, when the Democrats were in power, to vote in the committee of the whole on the floor of the House. But that was by rule, and the Republicans changed the rule when they came to power and even took the vote of the taxpaying residents of the District of Columbia. Uh, they took that, even though that has been tested. I first got that vote when I first came to Congress in the early 90s. Uh, the Republicans sued the House. Both the District Court and the Court of Appeals said that it was at their discretion that this vote in the Committee of the Whole could be given to a delegate, and I voted. Uh, but, but they didn't change the rules. So you get some sense of what I'm up against when I try to get the full vote. Right. see that they won't even let me have the vote that the courts have said is constitutional. Now, there was a proposal to give, um, to add two members to the House um, that would, one would be for the district and one I believe was going to be allocated to Utah. Um, and so there would be a voting member of the House in, in um, finally after all these years. Is, is that effort going to be renewed this Congress? Well, no, that was, that was, that was, that was modeled after the Hawaii and Alaska way to get into the Union. It took them 50 years uh, until they finally uh, found a, a way that would make it a wash, in effect, because you, 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 because the, the pattern, which has always, by the way, been the pattern in, in admitting new states, uh, would mean that no one state would benefit. So when it turned out that Utah had barely missed getting a vote because it's missionaries, its Mormon missionaries had not been counted uh, because they were out of the country and they were heartbroken, took that to the Supreme Court, and still couldn't get that vote. They partnered with us, and I got a, a good number uh, of Republicans here and in the Senate, uh, and that bill passed the House and the Senate and would be law today, and the district would have a voting member of the House except for an NRA amendment uh, that... Uh, would have wiped away all of the district's gun laws. And and so, um, will will that effort be renewed this Congress? Well, no, <laughs> because Utah has its vote now. That okay. that is that's a one, one once in a lifetime chance. It doesn't mean when any other state wants a vote. It was a state that that came very close to getting the vote and agreed, uh, and the House seemed to understand, and the, the leadership of the House and the Senate, remember the, <laughs> you can't do anything with Republicans in power. 
So you, I can't even get a bill to the floor for the district. Wow. With Republicans in power, so we could we couldn't do that because because we don't have people uh, who run the house who are at all sympathetic uh, with our status. In fact, they have been part and parcel of keeping our status as it is. They oppose voting rights under any circumstances. They oppose most Republicans over here. We got some votes, but most of them voted against the bill which would have given Utah a vote and the wow. district a vote. Now, Congressman, you know, a major theme of the American Revolution was taxation without representation. And it's unfortunate that you know, 200, two, two centuries later, that that's still the case in the District of Columbia. I mean, have, has there ever been a thought to, instead of arguing for the vote, just say, well, don't tax us? Of course. I've even put in a bill to that effect. And that got nowhere. They want our $4 billion. <laughs> so <laughs> that doesn't work either. Two syndrome. But, but so, that's an important question uh, because the other ter- the territories, we, of course, are not a territory, but the territories, uh, Guam and Virgin Islands uh, and the like, they have the same representation as we do, but they have something we do not have. They do not pay federal income taxes. Right. So they don't complain. They have the best of both worlds. We now, have the worst of both ago, worlds. The um the OAS, um, the Organization of American States, their Human Rights Council, um, found that this was a violation of the uh, OAS Charter and of the UN um, Declaration of, of Human Rights, and um, which was you know, obviously a major breakthrough. But when you, when you talk to people outside of the district, are, are they even aware that, that people in the district don't have any voting representation in Congress? Well, they're largely unaware. And they're, all the polls show, and there have been um, a, a very substantial number of polls done, those polls show that people favor um, uh, full representation for the District of Columbia. It's only when you get to Congress that falls off. So it's the concept that works. It's just getting the politics to work that seems to be the problem. That's exactly the case. Well, Congressman, I, I want to thank you for, for joining us. I, I know we only have a short, short amount of your time, and, um, but yeah, I, just, I wanted to highlight this issue because so many people are unaware that you have some, over 600,000 people who you know, go to wars, pay taxes, um, but have no vote in the United States um, House of Representatives or Senate. Thank you. I appreciate your, your your calling because it does seem to me that it, it is a it's the last uh, remaining vestige of um, our failure to live up to our own standards. Uh, we didn't do that in the beginning, in the first place, with with uh, with a constitution that condoned slavery, with a with with uh, uh, a with, with the fact that the only people who could vote were white men. So we've rectified most of the, uh, the, the, the infirmities of full rights because we pay our full taxes. Well, Congressman, I wish you good luck today in getting this word out and, and challenge you to go to the House floor to try to vote and see what they say. But um, <laughs> any event, I want to thank <laughs> you for joining us. Thank it's you. It's a pleasure. And <laughs> um, look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. Pays $1.6 billion a year in federal taxes, and um, they've lost more residents in more than 20 states. 
but they don't have a vote in the Senate and they don't have a vote in uh, the House. It is taxation without representation over two centuries after the American Revolution. So please um, give it some thought. Um, we'll be back next week here um, from sunny Santa Monica um, for another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. If you're going to South by Southwest, um, bon voyage. Have a great time in Austin, and uh, we'll be seeing, we'll be talking to you while you're there. Um, remember, you can download our mobile app and listen to us while you're in Austin, or just listen online here at WebmasterRadio.fm. Um, thank you for joining us again. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center. I'm saying happy trails. Court is adjourned. We'll see you next week. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program as well as our complete library of programs on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.webmasterradio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.